0: Good evening um, I'd like to uh, begin just with uh, if anybody has any questions from last week um, and you have a mic and just very briefly, I want to just um, review like the three main meditations we did last week and so if that brings up any questions um, Did any of you work with the um, mindfulness of emotions during the week? Um, Basically, mindfulness of emotions is uh, labeling uh, our emotions moment by moment. And just by allowing ourselves to recognize what we feel and to really feel what we feel, it changes our relationship with our emotions and it gives us more choices This is something we can practice any time. Have any of you found that just by doing the meditation, you started noticing your emotions a little bit more during the week? And it can be integrated into your regular mindfulness practice. But um, if it's if you find that you're the kind of person has trouble figuring out what you're feeling, or you get overly stuck in your emotions. It's a really great practice to do it separately, to just spend a little time separately working with that. Um, The second meditation we did was uh, the free floating and the discomfort or pain. And the way we did that meditation was, did anybody do that on their own? Was it hard to say? So the, the, it's a little bit hard to remember sometimes. You do it once, and then it's, it's hard to um, recall. But, uh, so what we do in that is we focus on an area of discomfort, wherever the mind lands. And we stay there. We try to really penetrate it for a few moments, and then we move on to another area of discomfort. And just kind of free-floating from one area of discomfort to another. And we start out just by naming the areas. So if it's your uh, low back, you might say low back. If it's your abdomen, next, you say abdomen. And if it stays in one primary area, then you just focus on what's the top of the area, it's the bottom of the area, uh, so that you just keep landing in a different spot every few seconds. What that does is it um, lets you be with your pain or discomfort in little bite-sized pieces that you can manage and not for very long at a time, but lets you really be there with it. Um, The third practice we did was local intensity and global spread. Uh, Now, what that was, um, anybody did practice with that during the week? Great, great. So what we did there, that has like two, two separate functions. The first thing we did, we, we separated the body into a primary area, which is where the primary pain or discomfort is, and a secondary area, everything else. And first we started just focusing on the secondary area. Now, that's a really wonderful thing to do because sometimes when you have chronic pain, you fixate on it. It's like the moment you close your eyes, there you go, right? You clump onto the pain. And there's a million other sensations, but that's the one you've, you're conditioned to go to. So by spending time training the mind into the secondary area, it gives you a lot more choice. Um, the second part of the of the practice is we focus back into the primary area, and then we let it spread outward into the rest of the body, into relaxing into the rest of the body. Uh, Again, one of the other functions is that it helps you relax everything else that 's not in the primary area because sometimes we um, in reaction to it, we might grit our teeth, make fists, so that 's one of the other functions of this practice. It makes you aware of all the secondary areas where you um, where you 're holding um, but but going back to the the uh, the second part of it the when you focus on the primary area, and the image that we use is like a ripple in a pond, so that the, like the splash in a pond is the primary pain, and then the ripple outward. And you just kind of go back and forth between that primary pain, that, that splash, and the spreading outward into the rest of the body, and it helps dissipate the, the solidity of the pain. Um, so any of those practices are really great practices to work with. You know, I'm going to be going over three more different practices today. Um, and then you'll just see what really works well with you to work for a while. Um, it's good to have a toolbox of different practices that can be used at different times. But to train your mind, you kind of want to stick to a couple, to two or three. Um, did anyone work with using the five breaths, like every hour or every couple hours during the day? Okay, a few people. Again, I really like to. That's one practice I'd really like to stress because, um, you know, we may meditate formally for you know one sitting a day, maybe two sittings if we're really great, uh, but we have all these other hours that you know we have a chronic tension and stresses that stay built up. And this exercise, what we do is we pay attention to five breaths. Now, most people breathe about 12 to 15, well, more 15 breaths a minute or so. So five breaths that are slow should, should take about a minute. Okay. So one minute where the first breath, you relax your thighs, legs, and feet. The second breath on the exhale, you relax your abdomen and your low back. The third breath, you relax your chest and your mid-back. The fourth breath, you relax your neck, your shoulders, your arms, your hands. And the fifth breath, you relax your face, your jaw, your scalp. So it's a really wonderful practice. It connects you with your entire body and it gets you to relax your entire body. I guess you take a break in the middle of everything else that's chaotic going on around you or, or otherwise. Um, so before um, we go on with the new, newer sections today, um, are there any other questions? Any? Um, okay. So um, formal meditation practice is one part of a broader context for training the mind. Uh, there's two important aspects of this context, which we, in Buddhism, we call a wise view and wise intention. Simply stated, wise view says that we suffer when we cling to wanting things to be different than they are. And we stop suffering when we stop clinging to that. As we learn to get to know our minds through meditation, it becomes easier to see when our beliefs cause our suffering. An example for me that was very important for me was realizing that I believed that I needed to be out of pain to be happy. And that I was waiting in my life to really live my life till that magic moment of time when I'd finally be out of pain and that there was like this feeling in me that and then I'd be happy, you know, this, 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 uh, and that was kind of like an unconscious thing that ran me, and that kept me from ever really being able to be happy, because there's always underneath, a, you know, belief there. These beliefs are not conscious usually, they're kind of, you know, we have some of them that are easy to, to grab, but a lot of them go a lot deeper, and as we meditate, we start, being able to see those as we develop our skills in meditation, we begin to see those deeper beliefs. But looking for them, just, just as we see ourselves being unhappy for a while, you know, are we holding some false belief? Anytime you're unhappy, what are you, are you believing something that really might not be true? Um, many people, especially with chronic pain, um, unresolved pain often have to deal with a very difficult health care system uh, Where the doctors may not know What's wrong? Where they might not care the health system is difficult to say the least and um, We may not be believed. There's a lot of conflict in that in that system and we can get really frustrated and angry and It's not that our perception of the healthcare system is incorrect. It might be totally correct, but our anger and frustration around it, sometimes it's based on the belief that we need that system to be okay for us to be happy. So when things aren't going our way, you know, we believe it's okay. Oh, okay, it's not going our way, then we're supposed to be unhappy. And it's only if things were going our way, then we could be happy. Um... Questioning or believe some of the stories we tell ourselves, you know, really question what are these stories, you know, do you do you think of uh, your pain as a personal failure? Do you think you're unlucky? Um, Do you have thoughts like nothing good ever happens to me? Um, If I can't do and fill in the blank, it might be, you know, roller skate, it might be, you know, paint, it might be anything. Um, You know, if I can't do that, I can't be happy. Do you have those thoughts? Or if I have pain, it's because I've got bad karma. I did something wrong. So those, those beliefs run our lives. They run the way we respond to things. There was a study that um, concluded that 95% of the thoughts you've had today, you had yesterday. So we've got a lot of deep mental habits and we're addicted to thinking. Um, but how much of our thinking is made up of unhelpful beliefs, judgments, anxieties, worries, dislikes? Um, you know, how much of your thinking, if you actually had to listen to somebody tell you all those things, would you want to hear? Acceptance doesn't mean we don't change what well, we can change. In fact, when you accept what's going on in the moment, it frees our energy from the constant struggle with you know, not liking what's happening so we can actually do something about it. As um, Yogi Bruce says, um, when you argue with reality, you lose. So the next part um, that I'd like to mention is wise intention. And this is like our meditation is so going to work a little bit closer to this. Um, there's three primary aspects of intention that we can focus on and actively practice with and train the mind. they are goodwill or metta, harmlessness, and letting go or uh, renunciation. And some people wonder, you know, what's the difference between goodwill and harmlessness? Anybody have a sense of the difference between the two? Okay. Microphone, please. Thank you. Um, Goodwill sounds to be more of an active process and harmlessness, more of a, um, just feels more passive, not doing something Mm -hmm. to harm another. Yeah, thank you. Um, It's not that they're so different, you know, the end result is kind of the same, but it's the way we approach it, you know, in harmlessness, we stop doing things. In goodwill, we do things. And there are two ways of using the mind, and training the mind for in those two different ways can, can be a little bit different. Um, but it doesn't matter which one you train; the other one will strengthen. So, um, but to work with harmlessness, you first have to be able to recognize the thoughts in your mind that are causing you harm. Now, we're, we're not tonight. We're talking about harm you know, being harmless to yourself. And you know, a lot of people think harmlessness, you know, I don't want to do bad things out in the world or hurt anybody. But we're really talking about how much harm we cause ourselves. And so to work with, how do we cause ourselves harm? With the thoughts we have. And And to stop those harmful thoughts, we have to see them. And to see them, we have to give our minds attention. We have to take the time. We won't notice them in the middle of the chaos of running from one thing to another. We have to give ourselves the time to see any of the thoughts where we're harming ourselves. An example, a thought that you might not even think twice about. You might think, you know, let's say you tripped, you know, in front of a bunch of people. You go, oh, I'm a for." You know, I'm just such a cluster having fallen. I can't believe, you know. And and not realizing that that thought actually harms you. That it's actually reinforcing uh, negative feelings towards yourself. Um, goodwill. Now, working with goodwill or metta um, or loving kindness is another word for It's having a friendly attitude towards ourselves, towards our pain and towards our situation. Um, Pay attention during the day. Are you treating yourself the way you'd like your best friend to treat you? That's what loving kindness towards yourself is. That's how we should hold ourselves. How do we want our best friends to treat you, the people who love us? How do we want to be treated? And are we at least treating ourselves that well? Um... The third quality that we're trying to develop is the quality of letting go, of non-resistance to what's happening, of being able to actually be with our experience without struggle, without fighting. Developing these three qualities depend on being mindful of our thoughts. There are different ways of approaching the same thing, which is a mind that's free and happy. So, how many of you already have a, do a metta practice, loving-kindness practice, sometimes? So, it's quite a few of you. Um, we're going to do a short uh, guided metta meditation um, in a minute. Um, the way it's done, and I'll give the I'll first go over the instructions very briefly, and then I'll guide it. Uh, but we use like uh, three or four phrases repeatedly. And some of the common phrases we use are, may I be happy? May I be peaceful? Uh, May I be healthy? May I be at ease? May I be safe? And use words that you're comfortable with. You can try the words that I'm going to offer, uh, but if you're going to do this on your own, really find words that you feel really comfortable with. like for me, you know, uh, one of the suggested words that was given to me originally was, may I be free of danger. And all that did for me is make me think of danger. <laughs> you know? So it didn't particularly work well for me. So, so I went with may I be safe. Uh, so we all have different triggers and different words. So if a meditation doesn't quite work for you because the words are being used, just change them. You know, it's really the essence that's important. Um, there are two aspects to metta practice, to loving kindness practice. One aspect is that it's an incredible concentration practice. What that means is the concentration practice is when you either stay on, on one point or a moving target, but you don't let your mind drift from whatever, wherever that is, that single point or that moving target. Here the moving target is the phrases, the four phrases, over and over and over again. What that does, it's met concentration practices are called tranquility practices. They calm your mind. It's different than, than mindfulness practice. Mindfulness practice makes the mind very alert. But this actually calms the mind, calms the body, reduces pain. It's very peaceful. So it's a very different type of practice to cultivate. That's one side of metta practice. The other side of mental practice is that it cultivates the qualities of the heart of being happy, of being peaceful, of being at ease. And uh, The way it's traditionally given is we first do it towards ourselves, then towards the people we love, then towards neutral people, and then to people we have difficulty with, because we're trying to create a heart that's open and expansive. Um, I particularly think that um, in working with pain, really helpful to do it towards yourself. Uh, some people find that they're that that it's different for them. Uh, but I think that um, being able to love yourself is really crucial before you can love others. But again, some people I've had people who um, I've known people who um, they can't do it towards themselves, so they'll use their dog. Whatever works, you know, whatever you feel comfortable with doing this practice. Um, and the other thing I want to say is sometimes people think of those words and they feel kind of pressured to feel kind of, this kind of corny or they feel like, oh, I'm being pressured to be happy and loving, you know, and I don't feel that way. But you know, it's really, think of it as a concentration practice. Whatever you feel is fine. And you know, you want to be happy. You know, whether you feel a upwelling of love or not, that's still what you want. So, so it is, you want to be happy and you want to be peaceful. Right, you know, so it doesn't have to have this, this huge emotional reaction. It's just a direction that we're, we're sending the mind. Um, but if you do feel an upwelling of warmth, encourage that. Whatever comes up, you know, encourage. Um, so let's go ahead and close our eyes. It's very important when you do this practice that you're really comfortable. This is not the time to try a new position to see if you can strengthen your back. This is the time to really be comfortable and at ease. Take a couple of deep breaths with slow, long, complete exhalations. Let go of any concerns or preoccupations. Feel or imagine the breath moving through the center of your chest in the area of your heart. I'm going to offer several phrases, and feel free to use them. Or if you've been using other phrases, feel free to use your own. Repeat them slowly and steadily. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be well, may I be safe, may I be at ease. May I be happy? May I be peaceful? May I be well? may be safe may i be at ease Be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be well. May I be safe. May I be at ease. You can continue silently saying the phrases to yourself. But some of you might want to try to involve more of your senses when you do this. When you repeat, for instance, may I be peaceful, you can try to also feel the relaxation in your forehead. You might want to also see a visual of yourself relaxed. When you say, may I be happy, you might want to visualize yourself with a small smile, or feel your lips slightly turned, turned up. When you say, may I be at ease, you might want to sense your whole body in a relaxed state, You can just visualize yourself relaxed and at ease. If that's not helpful, just continue with the phrases. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. may I be well may I be safe may I be at ease may I be happy may I be peaceful may I be well may I be safe may I be at ease moment I'll ring the bell make an intention to stay mindful during the transition into opening your eyes Does anyone have any questions about the meta practice or about incorporating the additional senses into with the phrases? Yes. Um, Microphone. Turn it on at the bottom. Thank you. Forgive me. Um, what you just said about being... The thoughts, it's all thought. And it's uh, what we put ourselves through a lot of times with chronic pain. And, oh, I could be happy if I didn't have this or if I could be like I used to be. Um, Do you have a copy of that that we can take home? And also the words of safe, happy, well. Etc. I I uh, um, was wondering if I forgot my notebook and I would really like to. I have the suggested phrases in the. I don't know if any of you didn't get the handout last week. There's some here, and okay. um, and the words for the phrases are here in the loving-kindness meditation. All right. So I'll, you can uh, take this afterwards. Thank you. And. Um, and you know, the, are you recording the talk? Yeah. So the talk will be available online if you if you'd like. So. Last weeks, what? Last weeks, so yeah, And last week's will be too in a couple of weeks. Or, or editors out of town. <laughs> so, uh, you're welcome. Yes. Can you get the mic? Let's see over. Is. Um, <coughs> Is the repetition of the phrase, let's say you chose, may I be without pain, is that over time supposed to effect some physical change? Is that what it's designed to do? No. You know, it's really that um, I don't like to use that phrase because what it does is it starts creating a feeling of conditioning, of wanting something to happen. And it's really about just wishing yourself well regardless of how that is, regardless of how that looks. So uh, for me, I don't, I, I find that saying to be without pain, you have an agenda. There's too much of an agenda there. So I think it might not be helpful. So. Carol? I often wondered why don't you say I am happy I am peaceful I am healthy why is it may I be um, it's not an affirmation um, what we're doing in meta practice is we're um, you know we're creating a friendly attitude towards ourselves so it's what we wish for ourselves and so it's a it's an active uh, it's an act of, of um, of kindness towards ourselves. And one of the interesting things that it does when we do that, it creates a little bit more of the observer. You know, this is not something that's, uh, you know, for instance, um, one of the things that happens to us when we're meditating is we often create an observer that watches, that sees what's happening. And that creates a lot of spaciousness in our minds. So when we say, may I be happy, you know, it creates that kind of uh that feeling of um of uh of spaciousness instead of an identity as saying, I'm the one who's happy, I'm the one who um and that's my that's my perception of that. So any other questions? Okay, with the next little piece I want to do is I want to talk about understanding pain. Um I think it's really important with pain to demystify it, uh, to understand the mechanism as much as we're able to. Uh, they did a study. Um, let's see if I have that here somewhere. Um, I'll go by memory. They, uh, they found that surgical patients, after they had surgery, if they really understood their procedures, they had less pain afterwards. So that's kind of a really interesting thing about um, not only do they have less pain afterwards, they, they asked for less medication. The more they understood their problem. Um, 20% of people in the United States currently have pain that has lasted at least three months. So uh, pain is unpleasant. That we know. We don't want it. If we have it, we want to get rid of it. That's the normal human reaction to pain. The pain is necessary for healthy life. The body uses pain to tell the brain that something's wrong, that there's a threat, that we're in danger, we've got to do something. <clears throat> leprosy, um, we don't hear too much of that these days, but it's an example of how important the ability to feel pain is. People with leprosy uh, don't feel pain. And what happens, because of their condition, um, you know, and it, and it was very common in very poor areas. And so they would lose their limbs. And people thought for many years that would happen leprosy that their limbs rotted away, their fingertips, their noses. But what actually happened was that they would get injured. Rats would eat them and they could, in the middle of the night, and they couldn't feel them. And so, you know, it's not a... You know, it, it's an awful picture to visualize this, but that really, ex- really shows you how important pain is to us. Um, the purpose is to protect the body from damage, to stop, so you can stop whatever's causing the pain, so you can create a condition for the body to heal. When we don't understand pain, it adds another layer of feeling threatened. So if we have pain, we're, uh, the brain interprets that there's a, there's a threat to the body. That's why there's pain. And then if we're afraid of it because we don't understand it, then the brain thinks there's a further threat. And so it adds pain to your pain just from fear alone. So by understanding it and demystifying it, it can really help reduce that layer of added fear. Um, a natural reaction to injury is not to move. That's what happens in, a, in an acute injury. When we have chronic pain, that's often one of the worst things we can do. So something goes wrong. Something is not, doesn't work well in our mechanism in chronic pain. And so we need to be aware of that because whatever happens in that initial injury where it says, don't move me. You know, I just, uh, you know, rip the muscle. Don't move it. Let it heal. Which heals in a few days, but the chronic pain set, we, we're, our mindset is such that we don't move at all for a long time and we've changed the way we move our bodies. Movement, as I said last time, is one of the most important things to do in chronic pain. Um, the way that oxygen gets to our tissues is through movement. The blood pumps, well the blood pumps from the heart out to all the tissues in the body. Every inch of your body is permeated by oxygen when the blood is pumped by the heart. But the interesting thing about it, once the blood arrives at the tissues, there's no pump bringing the blood back. The blood just has to seep back into the veins. There's no nothing that moves it except your body's movement. And what's in the tissues now? It's your waste. The oxygen got delivered to your tissues by this pumping heart and now the waste is sitting around there. And the waste includes the chemicals that cause pain, the chem, you know, the uh, the carbon dioxide that needs to be picked back up in the blood. So movement is what keeps that going properly so throughout a day you do not want to leave your body stagnant even like i said you know if you're in a condition where you really can't do much even just moving your arms back and forth a number of times say that fatigues you you do a few times a few times 10 minutes a rocking chair any motion but regularly throughout the day our lives have become, even if you don't have severe pain, our lives in general have become extremely sedentary in this culture, where so much of what we do is in front of the computer, in front of the television, reading, uh, sitting on the phone, you know, we're, we tend to be incredibly sedentary. The more sedentary we are, the more sedentary we tend to be. Um, Another interesting thing about pain is that the amount of pain we experience does not necessarily correlate to how much injury or damage you have to the tissue. Um, If you think about it, how many of you have had a paper cut? That hurts. You know, that's sharp, you know, and that's like, huh? You know, that's this little tiny injury. People have had, during war, where they've had Major damage, limbs amputated, they said, oh, it just felt like a, this little mild, mild thud, you know, mild sensation. Uh, so the severity of damage and the amount of pain we have are not necessarily related. So sometimes, because we have a lot of pain, we tend to think there's a lot more damage than there is. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're making it up. But it's just the nature of pain. Pain is not necessarily logical and consistent on a you know, a little damage costs a little pain, a big damage costs a lot of pain. It just doesn't work that way. Um, what happens in chronic pain is that the pain system keeps telling us that there's danger. And it's unnecessary and unhelpful, but that's what it does. And um, A lot of people, I don't know if you've heard of phantom pain, people who've had limbs amputated, you know, they can still feel their fingers and it hurts, their hands hurt, you know. So, you know, and that's just the brain still thinks it's there. Um, Another important factor in understanding pain is a perception of pain. They did this study with uh, college students where they took half the group and they gave them a heavy backpack. And the other half of the group didn't have any weight. They're just, uh, you know, just relaxed. And they had them look at a steep hill. And they said, okay, please estimate how steep is it? How many degrees? The group that was in the backpacks estimated much higher steepness than the other group. Now they put the two groups on skateboards. So that everybody was kind of balancing a little bit on the skateboard, so they had a little bit of fear of falling. Both groups overestimated the incline. So adding fear to the mix makes us feel more threatened uh, and, you know, and really skew our perceptions. Um, Another thing to, to realize is that there's genetic differences in our ability to feel pain. Just as there's some, there's actually people who are born that have no pain sensitivity whatsoever. There's, there's a there's I think two diseases that I know of where people are born without the ability to feel pain. And those people have usually very short lifespans. Life but there's a whole mix. You know, just like we may be tall or short or have blue eyes or brown eyes, you know we we are born with different levels of sensitivity to pain. We're not all the same. And also, um, developmental differences affect how much pain we feel. For instance, they found that babies um, that that people who when they were babies, they had perinatal pain, where they were either had trauma, or um, had surgery when they're, you know, and, and they used to believe that babies didn't feel pain, so they used to not really take care of that. And um, so they found that those babies, when they grow up, are more sensitive to pain. So those are things you can't do anything about. You know, you're you're might have a higher predisposition to pain than other people, and um, and you, but it doesn't make it any less workable. But it's just sometimes it's hard to understand, you know, well why why is you know why is it bothering me so much, you know? So it's important to know that these are differences between us and that they can occur. Um, if we are happy and relaxed, we all feel less pain. Another interesting factor of perception is placebos. Um, placebos, which are basically sham pills they work in reducing pain 40% of the time. That's a lot, that's a lot. Now, a lot of people think, oh God, that's, you know, we've somehow been duped by a placebo, you know, and they sort of feel kind of foolish by it. But really, it's, it's really, I marvel at the fact that our brains are so powerful that by thinking, that it's going to reduce your pain, it kicks in the natural opium in the brain, the natural heroin in the brain. The chemicals are just like opium or heroin, and they have the same effect. And just by thinking, believing, that we're being given a pain medication that can work. Um, They found the shape of the tablet affects how well it works on us. Uh, they found that uh, transparent capsules with colored beads work better than white ones. And white ones, uh, white capsules work better than tablets. So our perceptions uh, have some very interesting effects. Uh, the context of pain is significant. Uh, for instance, let's say you injure your finger, just not a major injury. But if you're a violinist, it's going to be very different than if you're a dancer. So that pain will be more painful because it affects you in a more personal level. Um, They had volunteers put their heads in this electrical contraption. And it was a sham contraption, and they didn't know it. And they said, okay, tell me, we're going to slowly turn it up. You tell me how much you feel it. So, you know, they didn't put any current through. But they just kept telling them, okay, we've got 5 degrees, 10 degrees, 15 degrees. Tell me how much you feel. And almost all the volunteers had an increase, increasing level of discomfort. And there was nothing going on. Um, they found um, what we attribute as the cause of our pain is really important. Uh, For instance, they found uh, women who had had mastectomies, that um, if they had pain afterwards, that if they thought the pain was coming from recurring cancer, the pain was worse, regardless of what the cause was. So what we attribute the cause, when we think it's something bad, when we think, oh, this means something bad, it it affects how we perceive the pain. Um, They've been able to, with meditation, you know, they've, they've measured people and they found that if people want to, they can make their hand warmer, just by thinking of it. And they can get their hand to be warm, which is a really nice thing if you've got cold hands, you know, and it's actually, it's a technique that's used for getting rid of headaches. You know, you bring the blood away from the head, you know, warming the hands. Uh, it's used in biofeedback a lot. Uh, but in the same way, the opposite can happen if you have an injury that, that you've had a lot of trauma around. Just by thinking about moving the injured area, they've shown you can increase the swelling to the area. So our thoughts are very powerful. So that's the introduction I wanted to do for this next section, Mindfulness of Thoughts. Um, We're going to use Shinzen Young's uh, analogy of divide and conquer by breaking down thinking into three different aspects. So in a couple of minutes, we're going to do um, another guided meditation. But I want to describe it first, because it might be a little bit differently than the way you're used to doing mindfulness of thinking. Uh, When you have a thought, a thought's going to be one of two things, usually. It's either going to be words, or it's going to be an image. If it's words, it's going to be either a phrase, or a sentence, or just a single word. So we call that, that's like an internal talk, internal dialogue. So when that happens, when we have words in our heads, we're just going to say talk. We're going to label it talk. Uh, the other thing that can happen in thoughts is an image. So that's easy. You see something, whether it's clear or whether it's just kind of a vague image. It doesn't matter we say image. So we're going to go back and forth between whatever comes up. You may get no images. So whenever you have a thought, you either notice whether it's a talk or image. Or if they're both happening at the same time, you might say talk and image. Okay? Um, now I'm going to talk about one more type of thinking. Okay? Those Everybody's pretty clear on those two? Those anything? Any questions before I go on to the next part? Okay. So um, one of the things that happens when the mind quiets down and by the way, I will guide this. So, so you know, but it's good to hear it twice. Okay. As uh, so, as you quiet the mind down, the thoughts start getting further apart. The mind starts getting quieter and quieter. Um, and you, if you keep paying attention to the mind, you start noticing what we call uh, a pre-conscious processing. This is the thoughts. There, you know you're thinking, but it's moving so fast, it's processing so fast that you can't grab the content. And it doesn't necessarily feel fast, but that's you've got all these associations going, and that's where the thoughts sprout up from. So some people call that embryonic thought or subconscious processing. That's where or creativity comes out of, or intuition comes out of. It's also where our irregular thoughts pop out of. It's the mind, it's the, basically the subtle processing of the mind. Um, if, you know, we're going to do a short meditation, only be like 10 minutes or so, so you may get there and you may not get there. If you don't get there, don't worry about it. But if you get into a quieter place like that, what you, when you start paying attention to that, what you want to notice is, is there movement there? Is it speeding up? Is it slowing down? Is it like waves? is uh, it restful, calm, or peaceful? So just, if you're going to label, you don't have to label. If you can stay with it, you don't have to label. But if if you have trouble grabbing it, you know, and staying with it, then just use labels to help you stay with the experience. Maybe movement, a wave, calm, peace, just something to help you connect with it, especially if you're not used to staying connected with that. And then if a thought arises, uh, you, you say, uh, "talk or image," and then movement, rest, calm." When you use these labels, the labels should be very gentle in the background they 're there so you can recognize what 's happening don 't shout them, say them with an, you know, in your mind. you know, say them with a nice, gentle tone. Um, and don't label your labels. Labels are a thought, okay? So um, they're a special category. So any questions before we start? <clears throat>